please, if you want to come forward, please, um, you're most welcome. <laughs> it's a nice, small, cosy group today. So It's just that there's a lot of material to cover, so... The, the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. May his blessings and mercy dwell upon us from now and forevermore, Amen. Um, as we continue the series uh, together, today we're going to be talking about the discipline of the senses. And um, there's quite a fair bit of material to cover, as you can imagine, because uh, we'll be covering the five senses. But just to give you a bit of an analogy, um, one of the saints, whose name was uh, Theophan, Theophan, the recluse, he likens man to a king or a soul who lives in a castle, and this castle is the body. And the castle has five windows and a door. These five windows are the five senses, and the door is the mind. And he says that the enemy cannot enter into the castle except through the windows or the door. In other words, if these are closely shut, or very tightly shut, the enemy cannot enter into the castle. And through these windows, you remember this salesman that we talked about last week, the salesman of sin, who is Satan? He can bring in different samples of different experiences or sensations um, that can delight the soul. And out of these, the soul bundles together a circle of comfort and pleasure, which is what we call fun. So in other words, the soul um, comes to consider this circle of pleasure uh, as its primary good and goal. You know, you've heard of the saying, if it feels good, do it. Well, this is uh, how the worldly uh, people think. And also, uh, a person who wants to really live the road of Christian perfection has to re-establish the proper and original order that God uh, desires from each of our lives. And that is to find comfort in God and not to find comfort in fun or the worldly matters. Easier said than done, because sometimes we take this decision and yet the struggle is long and it's difficult. And you can imagine that after many years, if a person, for example, has become accustomed to finding fun in a particular issue or a particular thing, then it's very hard to wean the soul of this in order to uh, get rid of this habit. Very, very difficult. And that's why you remember that beautiful story that um, we covered together in the first session about the monk who was walking in the desert with his disciple. And he said to his disciple, pluck out this blade of grass from the ground. And he did, very easily, just with two fingers, he plucked out the blade of grass. As they worked further, he found a little plant, or a little um, tiny plant in the ground. He said, please pluck this out. He did. He grabbed it with his hand, plucked it out. As they worked f further, another little uh, plant that was a bit, bit bigger, he had to take a bit of uh, strength in both hands to pull it out. As they went further and came to a tree, he said, pluck the tree out, and of course was unable to be done. And the lesson in that is that the more that we um, exercise our senses to be God-fearing, um, the earlier we practice this, the better for us rather than to allow things to come into our life and then to try to wean ourselves off these things after they have taken root. It's, um, it's not an easy situation, but as much as possible, this is what will actually get us onto the spiritual uh, perfection road. So each sense has its uh, pleasant and unpleasant subjects. And the soul delights in pleasurable things and it becomes addicted to them, like I said, and it lusts after them. And even when a person weans himself or herself of a particular thing, <clears throat> and then that uh, matter comes up into the life of the person again, they might find that there's a rush of um, memory that will come back from the thing that they are trying to get off, or that you know that they've left for a while. So all the memory can rush back, and to make this also last reignited within the soul, and then it's a chain reaction. And just like St. James tells us in his epistle, he says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And now the saying of Jeremiah also has been fulfilled. 
He says, for death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces. Remember the, uh, the analogy that Theophan the recluse says, that a man is like a king or a soul, and um, he lives in a castle, and his castle is a body with the five senses as windows and the soul as the door. So then how can we um, discipline our senses? What are the issues that we might face for each of our senses? The discipline of senses is actually twofold. Not only should we prevent our senses from wandering about and getting harmful uh, impressions or bad things to be filled with, we should also train them to receive profitable impressions from every creature and everything. Everyone that you deal with, everything that you see, must um, um, you know, uh, put an impression into your senses that is God godly and God-fearing. Well, let's go through them one at a time. The discipline of the eyes. There are actually many verses in Scripture that exhort us to discipline our eyes. Have a look at some of these with me. We're here in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, that the Lord says, The lamb of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? We are also told in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5 and verse 29, it says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Again, in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the Lord says, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her, in his heart. Very clear verses about the discipline of the eyes. And I suppose in old times the eye could have been much more pure than in our days. Or maybe in old times, to put it in another way, that keeping the eye pure could have been easier. I mean nowadays um, you know society seems to sort of have become so lax in what it actually does, that it makes it so much more difficult to have discipline of the eyes. For example, dress code can have, um, can have become um, so offensive. And there are many ways that the, the devil or the salesman of sin can introduce impurity into our eyes. Magazines and books and billboards, everywhere that we look, we are bombarded by things that are uh, obscene or not holy. And it seems that society is actually uh, gradually increasing its tolerance for these things. What you see now, you would not see, for example, five or ten years ago on television. You would not hear it on the radio. And even department stores now, you know, you might walk into the department store and you might find there are big um, uh, paintings or big uh, drawings that actually show uh, things that are quite explicit. Maybe even just things that we watch on television. You know, um, you know, uh, one of the servants was telling me that um, he invited some of his children to his home to watch a movie together. And as soon as they turned the television on, by chance, it happened to be just something that wasn't appropriate on one of the movies. We are bombarded by these things. Everything has sexual innuendos and nothing short of even pornographic material. Even now, nowadays, parents are even concerned about things like um, cartoons and what sublime messages are being given to our children through simple things like cartoons and what themes are being infiltra infiltrated to the minds of children um, even through cartoons. And to add on top of all this, the problem of the internet has made these matters at our fingertips for both adults and children. It's a scary thing when you think about it. They are bombarded by material that is there at their fingertips. Anyone can access it, anywhere, anytime. So in trying to wean our eyes from these things, we've got a lot that we need to do. Look with me back even in the book of Genesis right at the beginning of time. Genesis 6.2 tells us something very important. And this is something good to reflect upon. 
It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. But we find that this actually was disastrous, because immediately after that, in the same chapter, in Genesis 6-7, this is what the Lord says. He says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see, when the sons of God looked at the daughters of the world or the daughters of men, and they, um, you know, and they were enticed by looking and lusting after them, it led to the destruction of mankind. Look at the story of David. It's a stern reminder for each one of us how dangerous it is for the eye to wander about without any control. How carelessness of eyesight um, has turned the author of the book of Psalms into an adulterer and a murderer. It's a scary thing when you think about it. David, who was likened to the heart of God. You know, when the Lord spoke about David, he said, I have searched the heart of David, the son of Jesse, and found his heart to be according to my own heart. When he allowed his eyes to wander, he fell into so many problems. But I suppose it's one thing to encounter these things by chance, and it's another thing totally to go looking for these things. The result is much worse for the latter than the former. And I strongly believe that when these things come to us by chance, the grace of God covers for them. But it's only when I go for that second look and the third look, and the more looks that I, that I uh, you know, um, practice, the less that the grace of God will actually cover for it. So if it comes by chance, I think the grace of God will cover for our shortness or shortcomings. But if I look out for them and search for them and diligently go after them, then I am putting myself into a lot of trouble. But even looking at and lusting for other things, even things like food and cars and houses and furniture and clothes and computers and toys, and, and the list goes on and on and on and on. It's actually another sin that we might commit with the eyes. The Lord Jesus Christ was actually tempted in this way when the salesman uh, of sin, Satan, showed the Lord Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then Satan said to the Lord, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So it's nothing new. Even the Lord himself was tempted by these things. And the devil is still using the same tricks nowadays to tempt us to cover to earthly things. But the Lord resisted Satan and he used verses from scripture to answer Satan with. And we can do the same too. We can keep verses in mind in order to fight Satan with. For example, I can remind myself about what St. John says in his first epistle when he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if I go after loving things of the world, I should remind myself then that maybe the love of the Father is not in me. And if I remind myself of what James says in his epistle, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When I remind myself of these verses, then I'm able to resist Satan when he comes to me to give me these glamorous things of the world to, to, to entice me with. But also the evil eye or the envious eye is another way, that, another way that the eye can actually offend us. And again, scripture talks about this uh, quite, um, quite readily. So how then can I properly use my eyes? Well, we should not only train our eyes not to look or lust at anyone or anything, but also we need to train our eyes to see God in everyone and in everything. We need to make sure that we've got the godly eye, the simple eye. And we have many examples of the fathers of the desert who actually show us how to have this simple eye. One time a monk was sent by his superior to Alexandria on a task um, to do in the city of Alexandria. And when he came back, the other monks asked him, and they said, what is Alexandria like? They've lived in the monastery all their life. They wanted to know what Alexandria was like. And he simply answered them and said, 
I did not purpose to look at anything in Alexandria. He went for a particular purpose, didn't look anywhere else. His, his eyes were focused on what he needed to do. That was his only business. He did not go there for sightseeing or to look at other things. When a story like this, which might seem a bit strange to us, why not enjoy the beauty of Alexandria? No, this was uh, a monk who was leading the road of perfection by making sure that he's focused on what he was sent to do. Are we focused on things that we are meant to be doing or our eyes um, wander everywhere else? I love the beautiful saying uh, by John Chrysostom, St. John Chrysostom. He says, if you do not see Christ in a beggar on the street, you will not see him in a chalice. See, these are the godly eyes that can only see spiritual matters. So we need to train ourselves in the same manner, to look at things in simplicity and in godly way. For example, if I see a beautiful person of the opposite sex, instead of rather making him or her an object of desire and lust, I should thank God, the Creator, who made such beautiful people, and say, thank you, Lord, for this creation. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty that you have created in people. Thank you, Lord, that I will see this brother or sister in heaven and live eternity with them. Which is actually one of the amazing things that one of the fathers said. They said, how can I lust after someone when I will be spending eternity with them there in paradise? Strange thing. How am I going to deal with them in paradise if I've actually been lusting after them here in this world? So again, we need to have this simple eye. And I think this is what the Lord meant when he said that if your eye is simple, your whole body will be full of light. And similarly, if we see, for example, a beautiful home, imagine in how much more the heavenly home is going to be more beautiful. And to say, um, if this home is so beautiful and it's here on earth, how much more beautiful is the house that's not built with hands that the Lord is preparing for me particularly? He says, I go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. Another exercise the fathers used to use was that they used to, um, whenever they saw objects, they would meditate on the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ through the objects that they saw as much as possible. For example, if they saw the rope, they saw a rope or uh, some sort of, you know, um, you know, um, tying um, material, they would meditate, for example, how the Lord was bound for my sake and for my sins. If they see a nail, they remember the nails that pierced the hands and the feet of the Lord and so forth. Well, what do I do then if I unintentionally see something that is offensive? It's all around us. And we're bound to see it. The fathers tell us that you need to delete it from your mind and delete it very quickly. If we try to bring this into the 21st century way of thinking, you know when you drag an object on your desktop and take it to the rubbish bin? It's almost a willful act. You're taking it and you're dumping it in the bin. And that's what you need to do in our own minds and our own hearts. It's almost an intense act of the will to blank out this image and to delete it quickly, rather than to let this image stay with you and be ingrained in your soul um, that could cause you problems later on. And again, I suppose this is what the Lord meant by saying that if your eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it out. He's not talking here in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. In other words, get rid of the image that has um, made your eye not, not simple anymore. Okay, let's have a look then at the discipline of the ears. I suppose one of the things that might be a, um, an offence to the ear is music, particularly bad music, um, bad lyrics, uh, or even blasphemous lyrics. And sometimes, um, and you'll know what sort of music I mean, that you know sometimes when you hear certain music, you feel like it's almost like it's the devil who's beating the drums. It's almost like a satanic sort of you know, um, pounding of the drums or of the music. And one of uh, the most offensive media that we have nowadays is music videos. You know, if, if people turn on a telly to, uh, to watch, you know, um, music videos, you'll find that they're bombarded by lustful uh, lyrics, 
uh, sung in a very lustful way, but also the eyes are bombarded with very lustful scenes as well. And bad music, um, whether we like to admit it or not, actually affects our minds. The words will affect our minds, and the words will stick in our minds, and they will keep repeating themselves in our minds while we are working or walking or even praying or doing anything else. So we have to be careful um, with regards to the ears when it comes to music and lyrics of music. But also another offence is hearing heretical talk. Heretical talk. Or watching heretical programs on TV. You know, if you ever, um, if you ever home, for example, one Sunday morning and you turn the telly on and some channels still have some religious programs, you might find that there are nice, sweet words from, from the Bible. But if you delve carefully into the meaning and what they're trying to deliver, you'll find actually, if you aren't critical about what's been said, you'll find that there's always actually a bit of poison hidden in what they're saying. For example, they might not concentrate on, say, the sacramental life for the Christian person, but only um, concentrate on the salvation. You know, um, say that the Lord is your Savior and you are saved. There is no need for anything else beyond that. So sometimes also um, our ears need to be protected from that sort of talk. Or what about something like also hearing gossip? That's also an offense to the ears. Maybe you might say, I don't partake in gossip. But even hearing gossip is a sin. The desire to know the affairs of others is equaled by St. James the Apostle to murder and stealing. And I quoted this verse to you a number of times in our uh, previous weeks. Listen to what St. Peter says. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Imagine that. It's liking being a busybody to a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. So listening to um, gossip will eventually uh, lead me to judging others. I might even form wrong impressions about others. I might ultimately start to spread rumors about others because I'm listening to these things. Or listening to other people telling me that a certain person has been talking about me behind my back. Be very careful when somebody will come to you and say to you, this person is saying bad things about you behind your back. And then you might start to hate that person and not want to talk to them. What we don't realize is that the person who is reporting to you about these things, by their very report, is actually himself or herself talking about someone else behind their back. That's reality what it is. So how do I solve this? You smile back and you say to this person, please come and let the three of us meet together so we can solve this issue out. You know, and most likely they will refuse. Okay? Most likely they will refuse. Remember that of course that a person is innocent un unless um, proven otherwise. So be careful that when come, people come and talk to you and say, this person or that person is talking behind your back. What about other offences? What about listening to vain and empty talk? That's also another sin. Remember what the Lord has said. He said, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. Terrifying verse. You remember the story of the... Um, of the monk that was sitting and chatting with other monks and then after they had finished chatting he went to his cell and then another monk saw him go around his cell a number of times and he thought this was a very strange thing to do so he went and asked him he said what are you doing he answered i am getting rid of all the worldly talk we were talking about because i don't want to bring it in with me into my cell or the story of St. Macarius, that after the liturgy, he would go out of the liturgy and place his hand over his mouth and he would say, flee, brethren. And he would say, flee from what, Father? He'd say, flee from this. And he would shut his mouth with his hand. Flee from vain and empty talk. Or the monk that would see angels coming and surrounding them when they are talking about godly matters, and yet he would see pigs and smell an awful smell when the talk was only idle. 
We have to be careful about vain and empty talk. That is also a sin, and it can be an offence. Finally, one more very difficult offence um, to get rid of is listening to flattery, being flattered by other people. We all like it, of course, when people say good things about us or when they praise us, but don't forget what the Lord said. And again, I've repeated this verse a number of times. The Lord says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And actually, if you go back to your scripture and you read carefully the book of Daniel, and particularly chapter 11, you find that actually flattery is going to be one of the most potent weapons that the Antichrist will use to deceive people, even the elect. Flattery will be used by the Antichrist to, um, to, uh, to deceive people in the, uh, in the end of times. So how then can I properly use my ears? Strange that the Lord said, he who has ears, let him hear. But everybody has ears. But I wonder whether people actually have ears as a physical organ, but whether people have the spiritual discernment in what they hear and what they listen to. How do we properly use our ears? Again, we need to wean our ears from bad things that they have been accustomed to, um, to hearing. And we need to exercise ourselves in the discipline of the ears. And just as we fast or our mouth fasts from food during uh, fasts, we need to also make our ears fast from bad music, uh, gossip, all unnecessary things, um, maybe like spending a long time on phone calls or idle uh, chatter and so forth. But another thing as well that we can do is that we can train our ears to perceive God in everything that we hear. For example, if I hear a beautiful tune or a beautiful hymn, or a beautiful song, I can think to myself and say, how beautiful will heaven be if this hymn is so beautiful and so moving? How is this going to be so in heaven then? How much more so it will be in heaven? Or another exercise that I can um, use to meditate on spiritual matters when I hear things. For example, when my alarm goes off, my clock alarm, whether on you know alarm clock or on the phone, I can say to myself, now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when, when we first believed, as St. Paul says in the book of Romans. Imagine that when, when I train my ears to behave in that way, I will only make sure that I'm hearing proper things and right things. One of the fathers, whenever he would hear a cry from a little baby in the church, he would say, this is by far more powerful than any sermon I will ever give. He feels that this little child is actually enchanting God through their cry, which is much more powerful than any good sermon that he has prepared or will give. So again, we need to train our ears in order to um, hear properly. Okay, what about discipline of the tongue? <clears throat> and there's a lot of things here with regards to the tongue. There's a sense of taste. And again, we need to train uh, this sense of taste, believe it or not. For example, to have a liking for gourmet food all the time, or on the opposite hand, to have a disliking for humble foods, um, maybe it's not the way of spiritual perfection. The only exception with that is something like fasikh. You can dislike that. There's no problem with that. Because actually, taste is, is very important. Remember our mother Eve one bite into the forbidden the forbidden fruit was disastrous. One bite of the forbidden fruit was disastrous. Listen to what uh, Amos the prophet says in 6.4. He says, talks about um, a way of lifestyle. He says, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the of the stall. It's not about the type of food here, but it's about the luxurious or excessive luxurious living uh, style. But also remember the parable of the rich man. Um, the Gospel of St. Luke says that he fed sumptu sumptuously every day. He fed sumptuously every day. And the Gospel emphasizes the word every day. So it's not a sin to eat delicious food once in a while 
or maybe uh, you know on a daily basis but I need to also make sure that I am not living this luxurious life beyond measure because there's nothing wrong with eating um, luxurious food of course even the father of the prodigal son he ordered them to bring the fatted calf um, and to kill it and to uh, let us eat and be merry because it was a joyous occasion even the fathers of the desert used to break their very strict diet of dry bread, salt and water whenever they had a guest and they really splurged when they had a guest the master would tell his disciple boil us a few lentils for the sake of the guest boil us a few lentils and one of the stories they say that actually the disciple boiled a handful of lentils for the guest then they got up to sing the Psalms and then they read two of the prof prophetic books and then morning came and they forgot about the boiled lentils. <laughs> so they really splurged. Huh? But listen to what St. Paul says. He says, Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. That means I can enjoy a good meal, but I can also endure hunger. Or in, in our nowadays um, terminology, that if, for example, the, the food that is offered to me at home is not of the best quality, rather than murmur and complain, I accept it with humility. I can eat delicious food sometimes, but I can also eat humble food when it's time for fasting, which is actually one of the elements of fasting. You know, they say there's three elements of fasting. The abstinence part, so not eating for a certain period of the day, there is the quality of food and the quantity of food. Three elements that are important in fast. So I need to train uh, my taste buds to be content with whatever food there is. What about other, th other sins of the tongue? The tongue is not only an organ of taste, but it's also an organ of speech. And we are all familiar with the sins of speech, for example, like swearing or lying, gossiping or taking the, the Lord's name in vain, which of course we confess whenever we fall into. But here I want to mention other sins of the tongue that sometimes we do not confess because sometimes we don't think that they are actually sins. For example, talk, talkativeness, talkativeness, you know, being talkative. Is that a sin? Well, let's, let's look at what Scripture tells us. For example, the book of Proverbs says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Also, the book of Proverbs says, He who has knowledge spares his words. Ecclesiastes tells us that a fool's voice is known by his many words. So maybe being uh, excessive talk is also a sin. But I suppose the gravest um, warning about uh, excessive talking comes from the Lord himself. Listen to what he says in the Gospel of St. Matthew. He says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on judgment day. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. That means every word that I say unnecessarily, I will have to give an account of that on a day of judgment. This is scary. It's really scary. Every word that I say unnecessarily, I'll have to give um, an account of this on Judgment Day. And the fathers tell us that excessive talk is actually a sign of pride because a person who talks a lot is a person um, who thinks that they have wisdom and they know a lot and they feel almost obliged to, um, to share this with the whole world. So excessive talking is the mother of gossip and backbiting and ruining of people's reputation and so forth. It's actually the cause of arguments and boasting. You know, a person who excessively talks usually embellishes his stories with exaggerations and half-truths to uh, attract, you know, the admiration of people. Uh, people might spend hours, you know, on the phone when maybe it's not necessary. So all these idle words... Um, that will be given, uh, we'll have to give an account of them on the judgment day. The fathers of the desert actually took this sin very seriously. And they almost strove to, um, to have the virtue of silence in various ways. We know the beautiful saying of Saint Arsenius when he said, Many a times I have spoken and regretted, 
but I have never regretted silence. So the first step in combating this sin is to realize that it, it is a sin. Sometimes we don't think that when I talk a lot, like I'm doing now, is actually a sin. But, you know, we have to exercise self-control and uh, practice silence. One of the fathers used to put a little pebble underneath their tongue in order to make sure that they don't talk excessively. They would know then when they're attacked by someone, before they respond, they would feel this pebble in their mouth and would give them uh, self-control to bite their tongue, so as to speak, and not to answer back. So excessive talking is a sin. What about giving advice? Is giving advice a sin? Yes, in some circumstances it is. What are these circumstances? Firstly, if the advice is given without being asked for, imagine I'm giving somebody advice when they're not asking for it. Well, that could be sinful. And secondly, when, when I'm not qualified to give advice. See, the problem is that when we are asked for advice, we instantly become experts in the subject that we are talking about, even if we don't know anything about it. You're in a position where people think that you are an expert. And there are few, very few of those who really know the real wisdom and courage to say, I don't know. It's better to say, I don't know, rather than to speak your mind and then show that you do not know what you are saying. It's scary. And imagine also the advice that you've given to a person, particularly in serious matters, um, you have become responsible then for the behavior of that person because you've given them that advice. Imagine if it's wrong advice and that person takes it on in their lives and, and, and lives by, by it. It's a dangerous thing. One thing you can say to your friend is that, look, I'm sorry, I'm not an expert in this. I will pray for you and pray with you and maybe refer them to somebody else who's able to help them or write their name and um, you know, put their name on the altar during the liturgies and pray for them. But be careful when you give advice because that also can be sinful. Let's keep moving on. What about the sense of smell? Even the sense of smell can, prov can provoke um, bad thoughts and feelings in a person. For example, uh, strong smelling perfumes can produce actually uh, lustful desires in the flesh. And believe it or not, the Bible even speaks about this too. Listen to what the prophet Amos says in 6.6. He says, Woe to you who anoint yourselves with the best ointments. Even scripture talks about this sort of thing. So people should be very careful that they don't use strong-smelling perfumes or aftershave that could be um, offending others or hurting others. Or the smell of food particularly on fasting days. If you're walking past that hamburger place or that pizza place where you smell the neighbors doing a barbecue on fasting day, it's very tempting, particularly during fasting. Well, the fathers have a very simple solution for that. They say it's very simple. Do not inhale. Do not inhale. <laughs> Amba Braam, the bishop of Fayoum, he once had a compelling desire to have stuffed pigeon. It's a delicacy food in Egypt. So he asked his servant to prepare it. And when it was cooked, he told his servant to leave it. And whenever the servant would ask him if he wanted it, he would say, no, leave it. After a few days, it started to rot. It became rotten. There was no fridges in those days. And then he told his servant to bring it. And of course, it smelled awful. And he looked at it and the saint said to himself, this is what your heart desires, Abraham. Go ahead and eat of it. Go ahead and eat of it. See, we need to train to train ourselves even in a sense of smell. So how then can I have the proper use of the sense of smell? If, for example, I smell a nice uh, fragrance or a, a nice smell, I need to bring to thought spiritual matters. For example, I need to think about um, the beautiful uh, example of Mary who anointed the Lord with the sweet-smelling ointment and how the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And if, this, if the smell entices uh, lustful thoughts in my mind, I need to recite with Isaiah the prophet and say, and so shall it be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. To remind myself, actually, that you know these things will end. 
These things can actually turn and become nasty rather than actually help. Okay, what about then the sense of touch? The sense of touch. The sense of touch actually played a very important role in the original sin. When Satan disguised himself as a serpent and came to our mother Eve to tempt her, he asked her about God's commandment regarding uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, So she answered the serpent and said, God told us, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So nor shall you touch it. Eve must have touched the fruit, the forbidden fruit, out of curiosity. And when she felt that it was so good and irresistible, she plucked it and ate from it. And we are all aware of the sense of touch that it can lead to unholy emotions in body and mind. For example, sensual or erotic touches can bring unholy feelings to a person. So a person needs to be careful with how they deal with themselves and with others when it regards the sense of touch. There's a beautiful story in the Paradise of the Fathers about a young uh, monk who was visited by his mother. And um, after the visit was over, he wanted to take his mother back to the uh, edge of the village so that way she can go back to home. But while they were going there, they needed to cross a shallow river. And out of courtesy, he carried his mother across this river. But before doing so, he wrapped his mother in a blanket. And his mother was amazed and surprised. And she told him, I'm your mother. And the monk replied to her, I'm not afraid to touch your flesh, mother, but touching you will bring to my memory other flesh that I had touched in my foolish days. So even that the wrong that he has done, he does not want to remind himself about the wrong that he has committed with the sense of touch. Touching our bodies in a wrong way can produce a certain uh, stimulation that is unchaste and unholy. And many people suffer with that. Many people. So we need to be careful how we use the sense of touch. Even in our social interactions with one another, we need to be careful with the sense of touch how I should not use it indiscriminately, especially with members of the opposite sex. I know many people might say, I don't mean anything wrong by it. I don't feel anything improper from it. Yes, that might be the case. But what about the other person? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? If I stir in him or in her improper sensations or thought, then I'll have to answer for the wrong that I have put them in. What I'm talking about here is actually moderation. Moderation is the key word. St. Clement of Alexandria says something very nice. He says, Christians are to be children of will, not of desire. Christians are to be children of will, not of desire. Let me conclude and sum up for you all these with a beautiful verse that St. Paul says. And I think it's very fitting that we conclude tonight about discipline of the senses with these words from St. Paul. Uh, in his letter to the Hebrews 5.14. He says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Imagine that you need to have your senses exercised, and they are exercised by... Um, what we have spoken about tonight. Make sure that you are so cautious that no matter what sense it is that you are using or it's been attacked, that you make it into a godly thing, that you have this discernment to be able to discern from what is good and evil. And glory be to our God now and forevermore. Amen. Forgive me that we went on for quite a while, but there was quite a lot of material that we needed to cover Uh, for the census. Happy to hear any comments or advice. Um, Self-control is... You're talking about self-control a lot, but in Galatians, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, so it's a received um, gift from the Spirit. So where is the... Where is the relation dynamic between practicing us doing self-control or expecting it, receiving it? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think um, you touch on an important part that uh, it's a gift of the Spirit. So therefore, I need to live by the Spirit in, all, in order to have this gift, first and foremost. But also, any gift that is not exercised will be lost. In other words, I am given, I am given theory um, to put into practice. Okay? I cannot just, for example, um, take one angle of it and not the uh, practicing angle. Because any gift or any um, talent that is not practiced will be lost. Can you have any talent that you don't practice and you, you're still able to keep it? No. You practice it, more practice makes you more perfect in that talent or that gift and so forth. And it's a continuous circle. So definitely it's a gift of the Spirit. So I need to live by the Spirit in order to receive it. But I also have to put it into practice so that way it, it does not die. It's a, it's, a, it's a great answer. You just made me realize something, actually. So we've all received the gifts of the Holy Spirit already. We just need to put them into practice. We're not waiting to receive them by extra prayers or extra Eucharist or anything. It's, it's, I've never had that. Uh, Look, the, the, they, are, they are there. We just need to discover these these gifts that have been given to so us freely. We have them because we are created in the image of God. And that's what it means to be created in the image of God. It's not about divinity. It's about the, the beautiful characteristics of God that he has allowed us to share him in. So practice makes perfect. Isn't it the same? And that's what we're trying to, um, to reach, the road of perfection, spiritual perfection. So practice makes perfect. I think you, you, you touch you touch on the word control, which is very important. If I can add an extra word in front of that, which is self-control. <laughs> By that I mean is that when I don't need to access it or to use it, or at certain periods of the year or of the day, I need to say, no, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to use it. N none of us can be without it. None of us can be without it. But we have allowed it to become so an integral part of our lives that we have now been able to even not, um, you know, leave it for an hour or two. That's scary. I remember on a camp one time uh, a few years ago, it was a year 11, uh, year 10 to 12 camp, and, you know, and I was sitting with the year 11 group. There was about 15 of them. And I said, who can do away with their mobiles for the weekend? I had no takers. No one wanted to. Uh, I said, who's willing to give it up for one day? No takers. I said, five hours? No takers. I got down to one hour, and I had two people that were willing to give it up for an hour. But there was a condition on that. Please, Abuna, don't look at the messages and don't look at what we've got on it. <laughs> See, that, that's, how much, that's how much it's become part of our life, you know. Where do I draw the, the line and say, um, is this controlling me or am I the one who's meant to be in control? Remember the Lord said to Adam and Eve, um, have dominion over the earth and subdue it. We've turned the equation the other way around. Now we're being <coughs> bless you. Now we're being dominated and we're being subdued. Isn't that really the reality of the matter? Try to practice, for example, even just leaving your phone for a few hours a day. It's not going to be the end of the world. 
I know there are important things and there are important calls and you know sometimes you know even even um, you know urgent matters and so forth. For example, try maybe even just to put it away during the liturgies or during the um, you know church services. Sometimes we can't even do that. Just to add on to that, Abuna, for all the um, nerds out there, the uh, new Apple update actually has uh, something called Screen Fun. That's right, yeah. And it allows you to block yourself out of certain apps and um, it limits you on certain apps as well. So social media apps, you can actually put a limit on it for the day. So if you want to only use it for an hour a day or half an hour a day, there you, you go. can put those limits and you can't use it outside of those limits. There you go. It's, a, it's actually embarrassed me because I found that I was social networking more than anything else, on my, which is a bad thing. There's a lot of things that fall on the social networking. And that, that's the excuse I gave myself as well. So. But I, I can't be without it. You know, I, I can probably leave my glasses behind, but I can't leave my phone. I can leave my wallet behind, but I can't leave my phone. We use it for everything. We use it to pay for things, to um, to navigate our way around, to. But try, try to put it aside and say, okay, let's see how I manage. How, well, maybe not in your generation, how did I manage without it 30 years ago? How? I, I made all my calls when I went back home. There was a list of people who called at home on the landline. Remember the landline with the... <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm showing my age, yes. So yes? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And then we went to a pager, and then from a pager we went to a car phone that was stationary in your car, and then we went to the Nokia. Remember that brick Nokia? Yeah. I, I'm I'm just worried that you know after a while it's going to be actually something that it's implanted in us. We, we don't need an, a, a gadget outside. You know, we just by telepathy or something like that. It's scary. It's scary. Try, try to, to practice and just put it away for an hour or two. At, um, start with something little. Try to avoid, for example, for example, looking at it when you go to bed. When you first wake up. When you first wake up. It's going to be actually harder than you think. Do I'm sure we can. I don't have social media. I don't socialize. I'm looked at as very weird, but I just don't want it. How much peace of mind does it give you? We, we, we go now to our social media to know the news when really there are other sources for news that are probably a bit more reliable. Or, but anyway, that's, that's, another, that's another topic. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. God bless.